Go ahead and make your way to Genesis 16. Thank you, Andy, for leading and for organizing that. Um, the guy is a servant. If you don't know the Davises, um, if you do, you know what I'm talking about. So thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to read Genesis 16. I've got, uh, I'm going to move pretty quick today. Um, I'm going to stay within an allotted time segment, and I'm going to move quick because I have a lot to, to talk about from this passage. Uh, the passage is, is unique. There's a lot of ways you can go with it. And so I've got a clear path that I'm going to go. Um, and if you... Don't if I don't talk about what you wanted to hear, then use it as small group, uh, and and that's that's a good avenue for that. But I want to read Genesis 16 first. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall uh, shall still obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lifted, lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. But the Lord judge, may the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they uh, cannot be numbered for multitude. We've heard that before. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. He shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over him and his kinsmen. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the will is called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram, Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Extramarital relations. Adultery. Polygamy. Slavery. Physical violence. All in today's text, committed by God's people. And I want to begin with a little refresher on some interpretation principles of the scripture because this could lead to some um, crazy things. I hear and see and so do you really, really bad biblical interpretation principles every single day. You hear in the news, uh, well-meaning, both Christians who are trying to say something uh, but manipulate it and then non-Christians who are trying to use it as ammunition against you. Uh, so one thing I wanted to do for like five minutes is just talk about um, a couple uh Principles of interpretation that apply to our text. Mormons have historically concluded that since the patriarchs like Abraham had multiple wives, it must be okay. Polygamy is in our passage today, right? Southern Baptists broke off. Whoa, easy. 
By the way, I went to Southern Baptist Seminary. Dad's been a pastor 30 years, Southern Baptist. My grandpa, 43 years. I'm more Baptist than you, so um, just hear that if you're new here. Southern Baptists broke off from the Northern Baptists in 1845 because they wanted to own slaves. Primary for economic reasons. And passages like today's um, were some that were used for, to justify that practice. Slavery is in our passage today. Um, I'm going to play a little clip for you in a second. Three years ago, uh, the film 12 Years a Slave won uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture. And there's this one just heart-wrenching, disgusting scene uh, from this guy named Master Epps that just makes your guts turn if you've seen the movie. Um, and I, So I'm going to show it to you. Um, and he's using the scripture to justify this horrible practice. So if we could pull that up, I'll give you an example of what that can look like. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, which knew his Lord's will, And prepared not himself, prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Did you hear that? Stripes. That is a don't obey his Lord. That's his master, you see. That then shall be beaten with many stripes. Now many signifies a great many. Forty, a hundred, a hundred and fifty lashes. That scripture. That scripture. That servant. Yeah. That scripture. Um, that is used. I mean, he used Luke 12 in probably the worst way I've ever heard in my life. Um, but I want to show you where that can take you um, and, and what can happen whenever we start to twist Scripture because people do it every day, both Christians or pro-Christian and anti-Christian. So um, today's narrative, the story, sometimes the Bible shows more than it tells. And people use all sorts of different theological strands, use different words for this, so I'm going to kind of... If, if I hit one that you've been familiar with, it should come out. But especially in narratives like we're in today, just because the Bible describes the behavior does not mean that it condones it. If you just picked up a Bible and flipped to Genesis 16, it would be understandable why people could maybe interpret this wrongly, right? Because there's no context. There's, there's Father Abraham. All I know is we sing a song about him, and he's, he's one of the patriarchs, so he must be doing right things, correct? I mean, we make a hero of him. Not right here, but... We do in Christianity. Um, and Hebrews 11 can be even interpreted like that. He's a hero, right? So what's he do? I mean, this is okay. The, the Bible does not explicitly condemn him right here in chapter 16 for having multiple wives. So what's going on? Well, it's not really like that. We try to weave this idea into every sermon around here. Um, this idea, the, the scene you're going to laugh at, the meta-narrative, that God has this big story. It's this overarching story that he tells and Dylan does a great job, but we, we do it. I have a slide here. Um, people say it in different ways, but like Andy mentioned, this is creation. We go creation, and then Genesis 3, we have the fall. And then we have redemption and the cross. And then 
many people use different words for the last one. Restoration, what does it even say? Renewal, uh, glory, whatever you want to say. And so when we look at Scripture, we need to look and see what part are we in. We see this, and right here we're in the fall. Okay, so we sing a creation song, and we come in here and we sing a, we'll sing a confession song, which is normally a hymn because no modern day songs talk about sin. Imagine that, that's a whole other sermon. And then we get to the cross, like we talked about. And then, then you hear Dylan preach the gospel of the same exact thing. And so what we do when we interpret, we're looking at, in, in this case, a passage that's after Genesis 3. So it is describing, it's describing a fall. These are actions of fallen people. So polygamous extramarital practice explicitly condemns or explicitly contradicts what we learned in Genesis 1 and 2 pre-fall in the creation narrative about what do we know about marriage. It's for a man and a woman. And that's it. We, we also learn, like to take slavery, slavery for example, we learn that men and women are created in God's image, and so you're not to own them. And we have that in our passage. And so this is describing a behavior that we don't condone. Um, we saw in Genesis 4, this really prideful guy, i got a slide, this guy named Lanik, who took two wives. And the narrative kind of breaks for a second and, and notices how um, in Genesis 4 here, if you'll pull that slide up, uh, in Genesis 4, 18 and 19, uh, that Lamech took two wives. And then again, in, in verse 23 and 24, he boasts to his wives, Look, I've killed a man for, for wounding me, and a young man for striking me. I am, I'm, I'm, my revenge is even stronger than Cain's. And so we see, uh, as they're telling the story, as Moses is writing the story, um, you see creation, you see fall. And we are in the fall portion. So we, had, we didn't make this up, this whole idea of like looking at the paradigm of the Bible through this meta-narrative, this creation, fall, redemption. That's not a thing we made up. That's something that Jesus did. Flip to Matthew 19 really quick. I want you to look at what he did when the, these Jews came to him trying to justify this practice they had of divorcing for any cause. Which there's a lot there um, underneath this, that word. Um, there was different rabbinic schools that taught different things about... Well, you can't read that, it's too small. Um, you have to read it in your Bible. Uh, different, different ideas on when it's okay to divorce. And so they come to Jesus, and they're going to catch him in this, right? And so look at 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea on the Jordan. And the large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they had a good answer. They said, But what about Moses? What about the law? Which was written in the fall portion of our meta-narrative. They said to him, when did, Well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so Jesus is constantly calling us back to the original design too. This is not something that we have made up. So it's, it's important for us to understand um, God is not condoning what we're seeing here. Um, and I wanted to point that out because genre of scripture is very important. This is a story. It's narrative, right? You see this in Acts a lot of times. A lot of, a lot of different, for example, when this, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles for the very first time. And the Jews send 
apostles to lay their hands on them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Well, they go lay their hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit, and it's this clarification and this, this okay, so to speak, from, for the world that, hey, the Holy Spirit now has left the Jews, it falls on Gentiles too. Well, we don't do that today. I mean, some people do, actually. And so if you've ever wondered why you don't hear, but some people do, well, that goes back to a movement about 100 years ago. I mean, it's not that... It's a, it's a new thing. And so this is, a, this is a, actually a misrepresentation of how to read the Scriptures. And it's very important. It actually causes divisions in our church. A lot of times people say doctrine divides. It doesn't. Good doctrine actually will, will call in um, the people who are trying to read and see God's Scripture in context. Um, and so I wanted to point that out today once again because I feel it's incredibly important as we're reading this passage. When I was little, when I was Maddox's age, I remember reading Abraham, and I was like, why? He had two wives? What? He was always this hero in my children's Bible. Like, what's going on? And my mind was swimming. But then as I got older, I never really got a great answer. Um, and so I wanted to point that out today. So our text today is really takes part in three scenes. Um, one through six is all in Abram's camp. Um, and scene two is kind of in the wilderness, seven through 14. And then scene three, we come back to Abraham's camp. It's kind of this little sandwich here. Um, and I'm not going to point out anything today that you have not seen. I mean, when you read this at first glance, if you read Genesis 16, you'd be like, well, that's a pretty obvious one. Wait. Wait on God. When He gives you a promise, wait on Him. Don't try to change it to your own timing. We are God's believers and we're covenant people just like Abraham was. God has given us promises too. Jim Day always says God's work does God's way. God's way will never lack support or God's support. It's another way of saying just wait for God. He's promised you. You're His people. Wait on Him. We don't have to probably look very far. I'm guessing in your life to think of about a, I thought of a hundred examples of my own life in about two minutes. You don't have to look very far to in your own life and in our other lives to see times where you have not waited. We knew that God said, this is a good thing. I'm going to go ahead and manipulate the details on my own. How many times have we seen people try to take in the benefits of marriage before it's actually marriage? Right? We know this great promise of marriage is there. God has told us to do it. And so what do we so often do is we try to take a part in some of those things in marriage. I mean, I'm around youth a lot, and so this is the first thing that pops into my mind. Um, we have time. We have a timing from God that we want to wait on. And what happens when, that, when we do that? It screws up a lot of stuff. It's damaging. You might be like, well, who am I? Who are you to judge? I know that guy has potential. Just dating him until he starts to love Jesus more. How damaging can that be? That's just one example. Um, I thought of uh, when my wife and I were done with seminary. or We couldn't buy a house or anything because we were in seminary. So all of our money was going to that. Uh, all of my wife's money she was making while I was being... She's my sugar mama. Um, <laughs> but we, a lot of our friends would freshly get out of college and just buy like a huge house. Because, you know, at that time, subprime loans were like everywhere. So, I mean, if you had a pulse, you could get a loan. And it wasn't a great loan. Not good at all. And so, I mean, five years later, a lot of my friends are having to move back in. I'm not kidding. With families now, moving back into their own parents' house. And so what had happened was, you know, this promise of working hard and providing for your family, we started letting, like, the world, like, the market, and, uh, you know, however our business was going in time to determine whether that was a wise decision or not. Whether I could get a good loan rate on that. We've all done stuff with that. I'm, not, I'm just saying that it's, it, it's, it's not... 
uncommon for us to depend and not wait um, and depend on the Lord for His for His timing. And so I'm going to stop there. You can fill in your own for your own life. That'd be a good small group question. Hey, name a time when you had a promise from God. It's a good thing, but you went ahead. Maybe it was a business deal. Maybe it was a car. Oh, cool. I can now free up $500 a month for however 72 years to pay for this you know, car. Well, is that just because the... That's, you know, you know what I'm saying? So open up those, look at those in your small group, and, and, and decide, you know, what's a wisdom principle, actually, um, when you make those decisions? What, what would God say? Has He given you the, the okay on that? And, but Scripture gives us hope. If you're waiting, you're like, well, I've been waiting for a long time for this to happen, and it's not happening yet. Well, God is very gracious to us. Um, Abram here is 75 years old when He's promised He's going to have an heir through Sarai, and He doesn't have... That heir until 99. So he waits 25 years. I'm sure, I'm sure that as he's sitting around, and I don't know, the Bible doesn't fill in the details, but I'm sure as he's sitting around, his friends, they're like, didn't you get promised by God that you're going to have a son through Sarah? Well, she's like postmenopausal now and, and really, really old. How does that even happen? I'm sure at some point he had a question. We'll get into that in a second. God, what, what are you doing here? And so he gives us scriptures like Psalm 73. If you're waiting, this is for you. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So our God is gracious in these moments. He comforts us. Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one has ever heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait on him. What are you waiting on? Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. And also the great theologian, Tom Petty. The waiting is the hardest part. Every day you see one more card. You take it on faith. You take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. That's actually about women, so disregard that. But even Tom Petty knows the waiting is the hardest part, right? God encourages us. God encourages us in those times. He doesn't leave us. He knows that we count time different than He does. He knows how we are. And so if you're waiting, like Abram's waiting, know that God is comforting here to you. But that this is the part where I really was convicted this week. This individual waiting, is, it's not just individual. It's also corporate. Like It could be as a body. You could be waiting for our stage to not look like that. right? It could be waiting for you know God to, whatever, you know, provide... Yeah, things that don't distract. But but on a serious on a serious note, I read an article once by a pastor and it always stuck with me. I went back and looked it up this week. And he said that he warned young churches not to desire to have a successful church full of Ishmaels. And what he meant was that when you're toiling along, you're starting things, trying to be faithful to God's promise for the corporate body, you know that God's true children are children of the miracle like Isaac, not the human means like Ishmael. God will grow a church as He sees fit. And it will be a miracle. But, how easy, this author said, it becomes to become wary of waiting for supernatural work. After a while, you're like, you've all heard the Thomas Carey story. We, we know what it's like sometimes when God's not moving and you're like, you said, you said, and so maybe it's the beginning in our in our context, the beginning of a church. Like God, this is hard. You know how many times John 
They're in there keeping... How many times John had to preach after working about a 90-hour week? I mean, early on, before, when he was the only elder at Sojourn, like, I can't imagine what that felt like. I mean, just come in and... I mean, I'm sure that went through his mind a lot. But God, you, you let us out in this. What's going... Where's my help, God? Where's my help come from? And so this author says, when it's like that, it's so easy to resort to human means to grow the church. How easy would it be to turn to good social science and an attractional model to grow numerically and financially? And the pastor said, his quote was, it will not be a church of Isaacs, but of Ishmaelites, children of the flesh, not children of God. And I want to put that before us as a corporate body. We are going to grow on the things that God tells us to grow on. We're going to hold the word up. We're going to hold um, fellowship and and community up at, at Sojourn. And God will save us from the type of success that is worldly success. And he will build our ministry on prayer and fasting and the word, not an attractional model, that can be achieved through good social science. So, if you're in a time of waiting, one author said, don't resent God's training ground. If you're waiting right now, don't resent God's training ground. It will look really weird to the culture. It looks weird to wait. People ask you questions. This practice of a maidservant, what Abraham did, Abram, what he did, that was totally normal. Having a surrogate mother, we have texts from like uh, Assyrians, Neo-Assyrians, the Hammurabi, Hammurabi's code even has a little section in here, a newsy text, that's all. Like all of these have these little principles in here for if you can't have a kid in this place where everyone has a kid, that's your blessing. If you can't have a kid, you just go to your handmaiden and marry her. So this was totally normal for Abraham. He just did what everyone else was doing. It would have looked really weird for him not to, especially when his wife was that old, right? So it's going to look weird to wait sometime. It would look weird to your culture to wait a long time in what how the world reckons. Last thing I want to point out here in, before we look at scene two very briefly is that the author uses a phrase here in the Hebrew that is only used in Genesis 3.17, the fall. It's only other time it's ever used in Hebrew is in Genesis 3.17. And Adam, it says that Adam listened to the voice of his wife, listened to the voice of Eve. And so right here, Abram does the same thing in verse 2. Sarah offers this faithless suggestion, and Abram, Abram passively listens, just like Adam did. We have this echo of the fall. The author is trying to point us to that. Um, another echo from Genesis 3 is that Eve took and gave the fruit. That's the words in uh, in our Bible. And then that's the exact same progression we see in chapter 16, verse 3 here. Sarah took Hagar and gave him, gave her to Abram as if she were property. And that's where, you know, being a handmaiden actually wasn't exactly slavery in this society. But this is where it crosses over. When you uh, take the personal rights that Hagar had and you totally revoke them and treat her as property, which is what Sarai did here. Uh, mistreated, the word for mistreated in verse 6 is the same word used to prophesy from last chapter, verse 13, about how when the Israelites go to, uh, when they go into uh, Egypt, and they're mistreated. That's the same word. So there was some physical uh, uh, abuse here as well. She flees, she runs for her life. Um, and so far in the story, no one's the hero, right? You're looking for, who do I want to root for? Well, it looks like Hagar at first. Like, what did she do wrong? But then she, like, mistreats her. And then, like, Sarah, like, that wasn't very cool. And Abram's just over there being a passive whatever. Insert word here. I'm trying to not say words that I shouldn't say. Wimp. A wimp. Good. 
Not doing what he should do. Um, that's a good one. So that, then we go to scene two very quickly. Hagar is heading back to Egypt, which is probably where Abram and Sarah picked her up, picked her up back in Genesis 12 when they came back. The angel of the Lord finds her. Not the other way around. She is sought out by God. And though distinct from God, this angel is treated as God, just like you would have... Uh, an ambassador, a messenger of the king is treated as the king, right? So she's out there. The angel of the Lord shows up. And what's so crazy about this section of scripture is that if you read, this is something that this guy named James Montgomery Boyce pointed out that I read, um, that when you're reading so far, you have some big characters. You have the, you have Adam, you have Eve. He calls them the greats. You have Enoch, Noah, Abram. Even people who aren't household names, he says, like Lamech and Lot, they're at least mentioned because they're kind of like heads of nations. But this is the very first time in the scripture here the Jewish reader would understand where he does it. He just picks somebody who's kind of like a little side, I don't know, side plot. And so I want to read this quote to you. Lest we think that the work of God is for the mighty alone, we are introduced in Genesis 16 for the first time to a person who really has no stature in the world's terms and yet is the clear object of God's love and provision. To further illustrate this uniqueness of him coming to Hagar, there is no other mention in any ancient Near East literature, anything, not just the Bible, but anything, any time where a deity calls a woman by name. And he walks out and he says, Hagar, where are you going? We're drawn back to what Dylan has said many times, that um, God is caring for all people. We have this one story going on, but everything else going on in the world uh, where people are becoming... Uh, are being cared for by God, even though they're not necessarily in the main strain of the story that God is telling here. And also, you guys notice the language when you read it. How, you've seen other places in Scripture where the messenger of the Lord comes up and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. Right? Just like happened to our Lord Jesus. So, the two things I want to point out from this is, number one, what does the angel say? It says, where are you going? Now, do you think the angel doesn't know where she's going? No. You think that God did not know where Adam and Eve were when they walked in the garden? They're like, hey, where are you? You think God didn't know where Adam and Eve were? No. You think God didn't know where Abel was when he goes to Cain and says, hey, where's Abel? It's the same sort of answer, and there's a question under the question here. This is our God caring, okay? This is God saying, no, where are you? What are you feeling right now, Hagar? And you know, obviously Hagar would have been pretty tore up. She's out in the desert. She's probably heard ad nauseum about this promise that Abram and Sarah, who this God was the one true God, had promised them. And then how do they treat her? This is what she knows now of Christianity, what we would call Christianity later, right? So she's been mistreated by God's people. She's out there. She's probably wondering, like, is this even real? Is God even real? And God shows up and says, Hagar, right? He cares. He cares for you. And he cares for Hagar. He cares for the outcast, not just the Jewish person. Not just the American. I think this is so beautiful about our God. And then the second thing that's crazy is he tells her to go back to an abusive relationship. She was beaten. She was mistreated. And he says, go back. And the only reason she would have faith to do that is because he said, Hagar. She understood how big of a deal that was. And so there's two slides even. I mean, this is just a really quick little side lesson, but... The Bible tells us, even in an abusive relationship, I'm sure that you guys have all been in a place where somebody is over you, an unfair ruler, boss, master, and they mistreat you. And the Bible tells us, even in Proverbs, 
So the servant who deals wisely with rule, will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. And, and in 27 it says, Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. He who guards his master will be honored. He's saying is, when you're in a position and you're in a situation where you're not being treated honorably, you still act honorably. Hagar sinned. Like, she, she sinned against Sarai. God did not just absolve her of the sin. He says, go and do. Just like with the woman and caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He sends her back and says, let's, let's approach this from the right, right possession. And so, like, Martin Luther King, one of my favorite quotes from him, it's pretty famous. He understood this. In the time when there was systemic racism in our country, the way he approached this famous quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so I would encourage you, if you're in a place where you're not being treated fairly, you still respond as a believer of Jesus would respond. That's what will make him think. If you respond how everybody else always responds when you cut off in traffic, what is that going to teach your daughter? Like, you know, oh, when you get wrong to yell at them and call them names like they're less than human? Like, no. Respond rightly, like Hagar does. There's a lot that can be said here about this prophecy about Hagar. This is where I'm not going. You can have fun with this in home group if you want. Um, a lot can be said about what does this prophecy mean about Hagar's descendants. Uh, this wild donkey of a man. By the way, if you are Planet Earth fans, the first Planet Earth, uh, I think it's like number seven. Uh, we have the DVDs. And it shows, the literal word here is wild Old word for donkey that we used to, you know, think was funny in the King James Version. That's the word in Hebrew. And so they still use that in England. So when David Attenborough is like, wild, you know, he says it. And it just shows for two full minutes. I looked it up on YouTube. You need to go look it up. It just shows this wild donkey just doing whatever he wants. Just running around in the desert plains. Just, And it's the freedom that Ishmael always wanted. And God's like, okay, here you go. And that's why in God's mind, he's like, just like that thing. That thing that you all know. Who no one can tame? That's Ishmael. And you see this. And I, I thought that, man, that's a perfect metaphor. God's pretty smart when he thought about that metaphor, right? Um, but episode 7 on, on, on season 1 of Planet Earth is a great um, point. So, the reason I'm not going here, uh, Mr. Reese sent me an article uh, last, or last month when I saw him, I was preaching on it, uh, from an Arab, a Palestinian Arab guy who's a Christian. And it was, this article was in the, the Gospel Coalition and a lot of websites, and it was called, I'm Not Abraham's Mistake. And he just talked about some of the persecution he's had as an Arab Christian, um, and even Christians well-meaning saying things like, well, you know, if uh, Ishmael never happened, we'd never even have to worry about this problem. And the guy's like, well, thanks, dude. You're saying I wouldn't be here, and that would be cool. And so we need to look a little bit closer before we just pop off and say things like that. At least I was convicted, because I've said many things. Those words have literally came out of my mouth. So, um, I'm not going to go there right now. That's not really where the passage goes, and so I'm going to stay there. But where the passage does go, scene three is super short, the last couple of verses there. Hagar's back in Abram's camp and safely delivered from Ishmael, um, delivers Ishmael, which means God hears. There's this beautiful story of God's care for this Egyptian handmaiden slave woman who gives birth to this half Egyptian, half Semitic son who becomes very, very powerful. But I'm not, I'm not going to close with that. I'm going to close with a way that the Bible closes. I want you to go to Galatians, Galatians 4, please. I looked for like, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways you can go with this passage. 
And I just couldn't get past the fact that Paul, <laughs> Paul uses this passage, uses this whole chapter, and he teaches us a lesson. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to close with how Paul interprets it. Um, I can't, I can't one-up that. So I'm going to close, and our last point is going to be, what is Paul trying to say from this passage? It's very rare that you get to do that. Like, here, here we go, Genesis 16. And, oh, Paul did that again a thousand years later. Let's see what he has to say. It's very rare. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on him more than myself here. I want you to look at verse 21 in, in Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Those women are two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above heaven is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be... More than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free, free woman. So from our passage, we saw that one son came from slavery today. That's we're not. To, I'm not going to step on Dylan's toes here, but we know who the children of the promise is. It's Isaac, right? So we got Ishmael, child of slavery. Isaac, child of the promise. A supernatural versus natural. He equates Hagar, Ishmael situation to us trying to follow the law at Sinai to save us. The law at Sinai is good, okay? We're not trying to say that Jesus explicitly is like, no, man, it's good. I fulfilled it. I'm not abolishing it. It's good. It's really bad to save you, though. It will not save you. It makes you a slave, and we want to be children of the promise. Not the natural, but the supernatural. We are heirs and sons of Abraham through what Christ did. Ryan said this on the cross. Not because we could do anything. There's no penance you can do. To, to earn his acceptance. So follow me for five minutes. Go back to verse 28-31. I want you to zoom in there. Paul wrote this. I'm going to read those again. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers we are not children of the slave but of the free woman, these Galatians, Paul wrote to this area of Galatia where people were trying to get these new Christians to add things onto what they already knew was the gospel. And it's not new. This is something that's always happening. If you read in Acts, they're always doing it. These people accept Christ and then they're like, oh great. They go back to Jerusalem to report that they've accepted Christ. They're like, cool, now go get circumcised too, just to make it, you know. Paul's like... No. Actually, Peter in that poem. No. You don't add things on. You and I add stuff on. I'm going to get to that in a second. But Christ finished the work. Humans are always trying to add stuff on. 
So in verse 30, he's telling the Christian Galatians who are being persecuted by these Jewish people that no, that is going back to what Ishmael did. That we want, we're under the free son. So who are the persecutors? Like I told you, there were Jewish people. It's the same people who persecuted the prophets. It's the same people who persecuted Jesus. Same people who persecute when you read Paul going around and actually spreading the gospel. It's always the Judaizers at every single town. And it's probably going to be the same today. You and I are always like looking out for the godless liberals and the ISIS and Al-Qaeda. You know who's going to persecute us for doing right things? Probably most. I'm just guessing from Scripture it's going to be the religious. I'm guessing most of us in here have been hurt by religion. Religious people who are trying to add things on, extra rules to the gospel that don't bring freedom, they bring slavery. And it hurts. It hurts when that happens. You know what I'm talking about. Look at verse 8 through 10. It's on the slide. This is, in, this is incredible. Follow this. Formerly, you know, he's still writing the same people here. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's talking about when they were pagans. He said, you used to like go to church and have orgies. You used to go um, cut yourselves and, and sacrifice your babies. You were as pagan as it gets. You were, that's slavery, Paul says. That's verse 8. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, of course, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, which slaves, whose slaves you want to become once more? Now this is the crazy part, verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about now they're Jewish. They're following Jewish rules. But they used to be in slavery to paganism, and they get saved, and now they're in slavery to following the Sabbath rules, and all of the sacrifices, because the Jews are trying to add these rules on to the gospel. And so he equates, this is what's so crazy, he equates like paganism, God's liberal, like coming from the Northwest, right? He's equating that with the churchgoer. With the Jewish ritual. And that's, that's, that's in, insane to me, because I always think, well, you know, at least it's not Corinth. At least I'm not Corinthian, at least I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not going to name all the things you did in Corinth, you guys know that. And what, what he's saying here is actually, it's, it's, it's way more subtle than that. He's equating it all as slavery. And so for us, what that means is we're no different, possibly, than the Muslims praying around the world today. They pray more than you guys do sometimes, I'm guessing. And I pray. Hoping that God will accept them. He's saying we're no different than the Mormons. I mean, we talk about all these missions we support. Go on two-week mission trips. Well, the Mormons do it for two years, no matter what. They're out, walking around. If you ever wonder, like, man, those guys are kind of, mm, they're brave. Right, exactly. They're more brave than you and me. What are they doing? Out there trying to earn a salvation. They're going on mission trips longer than ours. It's no different and going to Dorset Tap and seeing, seeing those people burn incenses day in and day out to a God that does not have ears. The God who cannot hear them. But they're more, they're way more devoted in their works than we are. And we're children of the, we're children of the promise. And we have a hard time getting, our, getting out of bed sometimes in the morning to worship corporately with our brothers and sisters. Like, what is wrong here? This is what he's trying to say. And 
We cannot placate this true and living God with our actions. That's becoming a child of flesh. That's a natural child. And we can't do that. We're not, we don't want to be a child of slavery. We don't want to be Ishmaelites. We don't want a church full of Ishmaelites. We want a God who's supernatural. David Platt has a really good quote about this. I think it was a secret church or something. It's just really good. We're not slaves to religion who are doing things in order to make, to try to make ourselves right before God. We are daughters and sons who have been made right with God and who now walk in relationship with Him. This is a radically different view of religion. It changes everything about our lives. Think about it. How deceptive, how subtly deceptive and dangerous this is. What if Satan's strategy in the first century and the 21st century, what if his strategy may involve in your life not necessarily tempting you to do wrong things or horrible things, those pagans in verse 8. What if his strategy actually involves tempting you to do right things week in and week out? Going to church and reading your Bible and praying and teaching a small group, maybe even preaching, doing right things, but doing them all with the wrong spirit. Thinking about by doing those things, you are earning favor before God. This isn't new, man. In the Old Testament, that's why Israel got judged. That's why in Amos, the whole passage about let the justice, let water flow down, let justice roll like waters, right? Because right before it, he says, I am stopping, I am not listening to your church services. Uh, your solemn assemblies, so they're doing a good job, and you sacrificing, I'm not listening to. I can't hear you. Your songs are not rising above the roof. And he says, if you want to know why, let justice roll down like waters. Make wrong things right through the power of the gospel. So we look. We have these road signs like, are we doing that? Are we making, are we doing justice? Is that something we care about a lot? And then is that justice fueled not because we want penance, but because it's what people do since Jesus did it to us? Like, do we really know what he did? And then as children of the promise, are we then doing that for other people? So may God use this passage about children born of natural means like Ishmael to jar us out of our slumber. Our blind, dead actions of attending church sometimes, Bible study, giving 10%, singing a few songs, it can't bring us security. They have to come from the right place. We are free of these faithless deeds because we're sons of the Spirit. Supernatural. I know a lot of your stories. I know a lot of supernatural stories. God has touched your lives with grace, and it's beautiful. Let's remember that this morning. And one way we do that corporately is God tells us sons and daughters of the promise to take part in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that this morning. If you're a child of Abraham, come up to one of these stations, break off a piece of the bread, and dip it in the juice. Signifying that the body of Christ was broken for your sins and the blood of Christ that was spilt for your sins. So again, this is for all believers. We ask, if you're a believer, please come and take part. If you're not a believer, take Jesus, as Dylan always says. Um, save it for next time. You can join us in the feast. But as we take this communion, this corporate meal, remember that we are no longer slaves. Those things that are pulling us back, they always come back. We think we're getting it, then it comes back. Oh man, I'm right back there again. And so I want to remind us as we're...
taking communion, what we're actually saying we're set free from. So I'm going to pray for us. And then after that, come and join us in this feast of remembrance. God, thank you for making us children of the promise supernatural. I forget that every single day when I come up against an obstacle and I think that you're not there or you won't do it. God, I so quickly turn back and start to question, like, what are you doing? And God, you're so gracious. You give us these verses about waiting on the Lord. You give us verses in Galatians about quit going back to slavery to try to earn my approval. It's already there. God, we're no longer slaves. And we want to rejoice in that this morning as we get to partake in a foretaste of what we're going to do forever with you. Thank you so much for saving us from our sins. We pray these things in your name. Amen. No music. Hang on. Come take.